0: The following podcast is taken from a live broadcast on Inspire FM. As-salamu Welcome, everybody, to the first ever. Ask Your Lawyer show of 2020. I am your host, Atik Malik, Director of Liberty Law Solicitors and I'm here today kicking off the new year with a toolkit show. It's a one-on-one show, live show where you can call in and ask me questions directly uh, on any... um, area of law that we are discussing Um, and if it's something that we're not discussing and it's something that is that I can answer I'll try my best but otherwise the topic of law that we're discussing for today, you can call in one-on-one ask me any question or any comments that you might have end of the day this is your show it's all about uh, tailoring it to you owning it you know and asking Questions or comments, or making comments uh, which you feel should be heard. You know, sometimes you might feel that a question is a silly question, but you know, there might be other people out there with the same queries as you. And by asking the right question, you could be not just helping yourself, but helping others too. Um, We are today going to be discussing um, legal changes that are coming up in 2020, in particular, uh, changes in employment law, because in employment law, there is a um, annual um uh, change that happens every 6th of April um, of each year. So every 6th of April of each year, and sometimes October as well of each year, but in particular, every 6th of April each year, you will find that there's new legislative changes happening in employment law year in, year out. And it's always good to know in advance before these changes happen what they are, because they can affect either you as an employer uh, in terms of how you run your business, or as an employee, because it's important to know uh, what your rights are, okay? Now, how do you get involved in this show? You call in 01582-481822. That's 01582-481822. You can also WhatsApp on 0779-481822. That's 779 You can email in on info at inspirefm.org. You can also watch us live on... Um, on Facebook Live uh, With the tag InspireFM Luton So if you search for Inspire InspireFM Luton On Facebook uh, You can watch the show live We have cameras set up HD cameras may I add uh, Where you can see everybody within the studio Clearly in HD Now As far as the show is concerned going forward We obviously wish to make the show As interesting and as engaging as possible And um, And one way to do that is not only to mix it up with toolkit shows such as this and then to have panel discussions but also um, to take feedback from you, the listener. There may be topics or shows that you feel are important that we haven't covered. If that's the case, please feel free to contact the studio or myself directly at Liberty Laws Listers and let us know what you feel is an interesting topic that needs to be covered that we should cover. And we'll do our best to do that. We do have access on the Ask Lawyer Show to some of the creme de la creme lawyers in terms of both solicitors, barristers and QCs across the country in multiple areas of law and therefore are able to bring them on live to discuss um, a, a particular topic equally there may be other lawyers out there who feel that they may they may, can make an important contribution if so, please contact us More more than happy to have you on as well, be part of the conversation, ok? So let's do this then. Um what is happening in uh 2020? So In employment law, let's start off with that and let's see how we get on with time because often we are really ambitious when we start and uh, we aim to cover many topics but in the end, time really does fly and before you know it, we're at the end of the show. So let's see how far we get and I'm going to break it down as much as possible um, uh, to assist uh, listeners who may not be familiar with employment law uh, as to precisely what it is that we are discussing. But... um, We have got five um, major changes that are coming up in employment law this year. As I said earlier, they will be taking uh, effect from the 6th of April of 2020. Now, these changes, there may be others that could happen uh, because at the moment, as you know, we are right in the middle of a whole Brexit mess. And if Brexit happens... You never know what the future government or the current government even may do within a few months uh, of this new year. But currently, we have got five important changes coming up. So, first of all, there is a new right to a written statement of terms. (coughs) Should come. Okay, apologies for that. Yeah, new right for a written statement of terms. So, some of you may ask, what is a statement of terms, and what is the new right? Now, the new right uh, is, is, well, let's examine the current right, first of all. Currently, the position is this. All employees who have been continuously employed for more than one month are currently entitled to a written statement of terms. And that statement of terms has to be provided within two months of them starting their employment. So what is a statement of terms? A statement of terms is what we, as in the average person, uh, often refer to as a contract of employment. So under the Employment Rights Act, it sets out what the bare basics are for a contract of employment to be a contract of employment. So uh, that is um, uh, defined by the... Uh, term, by Uh, the reference of written statement of terms. And in the Employment Rights Act, it clearly says that you need to specify what a person's job role is, their start date, their salary, and the basic contractual entitlements such as holiday pay, notice pay, etc. So these basic sets of terms have to be set out to amount to a contract of employment. And what that means is that to satisfy the Employment Rights Act, you don't actually have to have a contract of employment per se. If you have a document that satisfies the requirement of statement of terms, or written statement of terms even, then the employer, the business, has satisfied their legal requirement in regard, with regard to what is the statutory minimum Uh, That employer is required to provide to an employee When it comes to a contract of employment And why that means that you don't need a contract of employment per se Is because if a business was to give to their employees A letter or email for example Which basically said Dear Mr Smith or Mr Khan uh, These are your um, statement of terms That we are engaging you under and then bullet point one, two, three, four, five, six, and each bullet point sets out one aspect of the minimum requirement of statement of terms, such as um, uh, their start date, their job role, their salary, their holiday entitlement, their notice entitlement, etc. So if a business does that, then they've satisfied the basic entitlement to a written uh, uh, a statement of terms. And what that then means is if the employee believes that there is no contract of employment because they were never given a formal contract to sign, that is potentially incorrect because that email or letter amounts to um, the basic written statement of terms. Um, And uh, similarly... Following on from that, if an employee believes that a contract of employment is only in existence when they sign a document that says contract of employment, that is also incorrect. As employment lawyers, we often get the situation where people will contact us and say, I haven't been given a contract of employment, or "Um, I was given a contract but I never signed it, so am I still bound by the uh, clauses in there? And the reason why this question often arises is where a person is working for a company and following termination, they wish to work for another company which might be a competitor to the first company. And to stop that from happening, the contract of employment contains what's known as restrictive covenants, which take effect after termination of employment and stop uh, an employee or ex-employee working for a competitor, for example. Now, uh, so, as I said, you may get a situation where an employee has not signed their contract of employment, either deliberately or just an oversight. And so they would raise the question, well, I've never actually signed this agreement, so is that clause still binding on me? The fact is that the, uh, that clause is binding on you, even if you haven't signed the contract Because at the start of the employer-employee relationship, it was made clear that these were the terms upon which this relationship was established. And so even if you do not sign the agreement, by the performance of your work on a day-to-day basis, in accordance with the terms of that contract of employment, the employee has affirmed which, in other words, means agreed the terms of the contract, and therefore that contract is legally binding. Going back to the uh, statutory requirement, then the reason why that's important to understand is why there is no uh, the statutory minimum does not require a contract to be given, but actually a written statement of terms. And the reason why that's important to to understand that difference is because what that that also backs up the position that I've just set out that if a contract is given even if it's not signed it's still legally binding all employer is supposed to do is to uh, highlights the main headline points in terms of a role that the employee must uh, applies to the employee and that satisfies a reg- legal requirement of providing a written statement of terms so, some of you may ask, well, why is it then that when I start a contract, or start an, uh, employment uh, with uh, a company, they provide me with a very substantive contract of employment? In some cases, you will see contracts of employment which might be 15 or 20 pages long, if not more, or even if they are shorter, in, in a lot of these cases, they will refer to another document known as the um, staff handbook or workplace um, manual uh, which contains further policies and procedures such as disciplinary procedure, um, maternity leave procedure, sick leave procedure, et cetera. Um, and so in the, an employee or a person may ask, well, if that's a statutory minimum, simply setting out your job role, salary, holiday notice, pay etc., et cetera, just in brief points, why is it that quite often that, we are required to sign a detailed contract of employment. The reason for that is this. Contracts of employment are not a legal requirement aside from the provision of a basic uh, written statement of terms. But it is best practice for a business. Contracts of employment are drafted for the business, um, so by the business, for the benefit of the business, to protect it and is there to give clarity to the employer employee relationship so that it's clear to the employee um, exactly what they are signing up to in terms of job, role and salary, but also other matters such as the procedures that the employer has, their requirements from a job perspective of what they expect from the employee and what various procedures exist during the course of employment in terms of disciplinary grievance, sick leave, maternity leave, uh, disability um, uh, 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 adju- Reasonable adjustment requests um, Health and safety at work Etc And that is there As best practice By an employer To protect the business So that there's clarity As to what the procedures in place are What the business relationship is, which is Between employer and employee And And so it's not necessarily a, it's not a legal requirement, but it's there to protect the business. And similarly, you also have restrictive covenants in place in contracts of employment because the legal starting position is if someone is, has left employment and is looking for another job, they are free to work for whoever they want, wherever they want. That's a legal starting position. Unless that employee has agreed in writing a contract, with their previous employer, that the following termination of the employment, there are certain things they agreed not to do. Now, even that has a limit, because the starting point is that there are no limitations on where and who you can work for once you leave employment with somebody. And and so, if there is a restrictive covenant in place that stops someone from exercising their legal right of work, uh. Then that has to be um, limited uh, uh, in extent, limited in terms of time frame, limited in terms of geographical location, and overall reasonableness applies. And reasonableness is a test that applies to all contractual terms. So whilst a person can write whatever terms they want in a contract such as a contract of employment, and they may have an employer might have a stronger position because they can say to a prospective employee, "Well, if you want to work for us and get paid." You've got to sign this agreement. There's no um, negotiating on that. So whilst that might be the case, um, even then, if there is, what they say, a breach of contract, that breach of contract is only actionable and has force if um, a court of law uh, deems that contract to be... um, uh, the contract to be uh, enforceable. And it's only enforceable if it's reasonable. If a court of law... Deems a contractual term to be unreasonable, then neither party can rely on that to enforce against the other. So, even there, um, you know, there are limitations to what can be um, put in place in the contract of employment uh, on the law of reasonableness. So, that's how it currently works. The new law, which is coming into place from April the sixth, twenty twenty. States that all new employees and workers will have the right to a statement of written particulars from the first day of employment and there's additional information will have to be included as part of this extended right okay um, now what does that mean then that means first of all that we have moved from a position of Employees being required to um, have or having the legal right to have written a written statement of particular. We have moved from that to also um, including workers. And that's quite important. What is a worker and what is an employee? This is often a question that baffles many people. It's a very blurred line, to be honest with you, between employer and to employee and worker. In summary, anybody who is not an employee but is employed directly by the company and does not fall into the category of self-employed can be regarded as a worker. An example of a worker could include agency workers who also have their own rules and, and um Um, Under the uh, agency worker regulations They have their own entitlements now But we often see situations Where a person brings a challenge Against an employer But their rights are limited Because it's not actually an employee They actually fall into the category of a worker Uh, That in itself is a huge topic to explain Um, And we've done shows in the past on that So if you were to go into the podcast for FM. you will find a previous podcast from us where we have examined in detail the different statuses that exist in employment law that is of an independent, uh, self-employed person, a contractor, a worker, and uh, an employee. So what we are seeing here is an extension of protection, really, being given to workers which they've never had before, that they are also now entitled to a written statement of particulars. Which I have to say, personally, is quite surprising. Because in the past, the Tory government has always been uh, renowned for limiting workers' rights and being more uh, pro-business. So there's been more of a bias towards businesses. However, we are seeing here something slightly different because the... Right to written particulars, so effectively the right to a contract is now being extended to workers too. And the other major change here, which applies to both the contract of employment for employees and the contracts for workers, is that it has to be given. The entitlement exists from the very first day of employment. So the difference between that and the prove in the, so the coming position and the current position is. At the moment, you're only entitled to a written statement of terms if you've been employed for uh, at least a month, or more than a month. So if you were employed somewhere for a couple of weeks and then you were dismissed, you are not entitled to a written statement of terms currently. Come 6th of April 2020, even if you've been engaged as a worker or employed as an employee by a company for one day, irrespective of whether you are dismissed Within a week or two weeks You are still entitled to a written statement of terms Now, some of you might say Well, what's the big deal? So what? What happens if this person doesn't get their uh, uh, They don't get their um, uh, written statement of terms Well, what happens is that You then breach employment law And the legal right to uh, a written statement of terms, and that can have one or a number of different um, uh, consequences. One consequence that can ha- have is the employee can then bring a claim for compensation uh, in light of that failure. So again, that incurs expense for an employer in terms of having to defend such a claim, as well as paying out the compensation as well as a legal uh, order by a tribunal that a written statement of terms should be made and in what terms. So again, all of that is undesired by any uh, employer. Secondly, um, let's follow this through. Employer on day one or worker on day one is entitled to um, a written statement of terms. They don't receive it. The employee makes noise about this and says to the employer, listen, you're supposed to give me my written stamp of terms you haven't. The employer refuses to comply. A week later, two weeks later, um, after continuously asking for it, the, the employee is sacked. Now that is quite huge if that chain of events can be proven and shown. And I will explain why and how that is important and how that changes things in the second part of the show as we are now currently unfortunately come to the end of the first part of the show so listeners please stay tuned and i'll see you on the other side to explain how this is an important change too Alaikum. see you soon you're listening to an inspire fm podcast making available our popular programs from our daily broadcast on inspire fm as alaikum Welcome back to the Ask Your Lawyer show. This is the second half um, with, me, with me, your host, Atiq Malik, Director of Liberty Law Solicitors. And we are doing a toolkit show today. That's a one-on-one show with myself uh, discussing a topic of law. Today we are discussing um, updates, legal updates for 2020, in particular for employment law. And the reason for that is um, employment law, as I said in the first half of the show, has an annual... Cycle where every 6th of April uh, there is new legislation coming into play, and it's very important because it affects all of us. Either many of us are business owners that employ people, or we are workers working for somebody, or a bit of both. And employment law encompasses both of those relationships and others, including consultants and third parties, contractors who work for people. All of us are out there earning a living. Employment law touches all of our lives, whereas Cases like criminal law only touch us um, because uh, you know you, someone might have done something long, wrong criminally. Family law may only touch you if something's gone wrong in the family. Employment law is present in everyone's lives every day because. Most of us um, are having to work for a living And and it affects us And so it's very very important That we understand what our employment rights are uh, To ensure that we are protected And if there is a breach of that That we action that straight away Without hesitation We should never be afraid Of protecting our legal rights And I'll give you an example of why leading on from the end of the first part of the show so in the first part of the show i explained in detail what a written statement of terms was and just to recap a written statement of terms is the equivalent of uh, of what is known commonly as a contract of employment and i set out what the legal minimum requirement for that is in law which is quite different to the common understanding of what a contract of employment is and on top in addition to that I explained that there was a change coming in from the 6th of April of this year 2020 where all new employees and workers, workers now will have the right to a written statement of terms and I explained how that's different to the previous position but in particular... What I also explained is why this is important in terms of being observed for employees and employers. And in the first part of the show I explained that one issue is that if you fail to provide a written statement of particulars, then that employee or worker potentially has a claim against the company which they can action uh, in an employment tribunal and bring a claim. And whenever a business faces a claim, it's expensive, it's costly from two fronts one is the defending of the claim itself so simply having to put time and effort into defending a claim you know is time and effort which could have been better spent making money for the business and on top of that Engaging lawyers to represent you, that is also very expensive. And in addition to that, um, the sanction, ultimately, if an employer loses, which is quite likely if it's very straightforward and they're supposed to give a written statement of terms, and they haven't, um, if that was to happen, then they would have to pay compensation as well. Now, that um, uh, so effectively, the new change gives uh, employees and workers a new mechanism for claiming compensation from an employer if an employer fails to observe the legal requirements of a written statement of terms. Now, as I said, the written statement of terms um, has to be provided now to employees and workers, which previously was only applicable to employees, and now is also applicable from the first day of employment. Whereas previously, you were only entitled to it if you had worked for somebody as an employee for more than one month. So the situation now is that if from the first day you start working for someone, you then have the legal right to be given a statement of terms. So the reason why this is all important also is in the second example that i'm about to give and this is important because it also helps explain why it's important to know your legal rights and why you should not be afraid of challenging or bringing to the attention of an employer a situation where your legal rights are not being observed and in this case we're talking about a very basic legal right that's the legal right to basic statement of terms a statement, a document, a letter, an email even just setting out what, you, who, who, uh, what your job role is when what your start date is, what your salary is your notice pay entitlement, your holiday entitlement just very basic terms now this is the example that I'm giving an employee realises that he should have been given a written statement of terms because and he, that entitlement stems from the very first date of starting to working. And then they are asking the employer for the written statement of terms. The employer is maybe, let's say, being a bit lazy, hasn't got around to it. The employee is getting quite agitated, as some people sometimes do. Not just because of a, you know there's a time limit to it and there's been a breach of that. But quite simply uh, because they um, feel it's an entitlement that they should be honored promptly. you know a lot of people would will get upset if something that they're entitled to is not given to them straight away. So it's irrelevant sometimes uh, that the legal requirements should be provided within two months. Yes, that might be the case, but it doesn't stop someone from becoming upset that they haven't received their contract. Sometimes um, people just feel reassured that they've got something in writing, confirming that they have indeed got the job that they wanted, they are going to be paid the right salary, and they are fully aware of their minimum basic legal employment entitlements with the employer it, you know that peace of mind is also very important and the reason why that's important is because of this example i'm about to give employee says to employer where's my written statement of terms employer says okay yeah i'll get back to you a week passes by another uh, uh, nothing's uh, happened employee becomes a bit more agitated so asking again Employer, either deliberately because they're getting annoyed Or just because of administrative issues There's a delay, they don't get back to the employee Another week or so goes by that The employee starts, you know, getting a bit more agitated And says to the employer, well look, what are you playing at? Why are you not giving me my written statement of terms? Immediately the employer thinks, you know what? I'm not having this, I'm going to sack this person And get uh, and gets rid of them now, why would the employer do that, first of all? Why would the employer think that, that, would, that they can just get rid of someone just like that uh, for no reason? The reason is this. In employment law, if you are dismissed for a bad reason or no reason, generally speaking, the claim that you would bring would be that of ordinary unfair dismissal. Okay, So you're saying I've been dismissed unfairly and therefore the claim is an unfair dismissal claim. However, to bring an unfair uh, dismissal claim, you have to have worked for the employer for a minimum period of two years. So what that means is if you've worked somewhere for a week, a month, six months or even a year, you have not worked for two years, so you've worked for less than two years, if, and your employer sacks you for a reason which is a rubbish reason, or no reason and just says get rid of you, The starting position is that you are unable to bring a claim for unfair dismissal. Now, a lot of employers know this. And so in the current example I've given, the employer may have thought, well, do you know what? This employee is getting a bit annoying now. I don't know what his problem is or her problem is. I've told him I'm going to give him a written statement of terms. I haven't refused. I've got plenty of time to give it. And they're doing my head in. And do I really want this person working for me? You know what? They can't even do me for unfair dismissal. They haven't been here for two years. Let me get rid of them. And they sack them. Okay? So that's how sort of the mindset would work generally. However, you have to also be aware that within this rule of the two-year service requirement to bring claim for unfair dismissal, there are exceptions to this. So so there are certain scenarios where if a person is dismissed. For failing to, um, so, if, so if a person is dismissed and they have less than two years' service, in certain scenarios, they can still either A, bring a claim for unfair dismissal, or they can bring a different claim but get the compensation that they would normally get for unfair dismissal that is, the compensation for loss of earnings. How would you do that? Well, if you are dismissed because of your race, religion, sex, sexual orientation, age, disability, etc. So a breach of the Employment Rights Act. Then in that situation, um, that dismissal amounts to an act of discrimination. And for discrimination, there is no minimum service requirement. Okay, And therefore, um, employer has to be very careful that the termination of employment, it cannot be interpreted as an act of discrimination. Similarly, another example would be, uh, for example, TUPE. p is uh, is an acronym for the Transfer of Undertaking and Protection of uh, Employees' Regulations. And 2 exists where, for example, one company is getting rid of a contract to another company or selling parts of a company to another company. And in that situation, the employee's employment is being transferred from Company A to Company B. Sometimes what company A or company B will do to b- increase the value uh, of the transfer of work by reducing overheads um, is to get rid of an employee either before the 2P transfer is due to take place or immediately after as a redundancy. If it can be shown that the real reason for this redundancy or termination was linked to the 2P transfer then that's an exception which allows the employee to bring a claim fund for dismissal now moving on to the example that I've given there is another route for exception and that is where employee uh, is dismissed for asserting a statutory right so what is a statutory right? a statutory right is where in law a person has a legal right to something. So where there is a statute, a piece of law, a legislation somewhere which gives an employee a certain right for something. So in this case, you have got the Employment Rights Act which clearly gives a legal right to a statement of terms to an employee. So where that has not been provided and the employee asserts that right, so he's raised that issue with the employer and said, I am entitled to this legally. And that right that's being asserted is a statutory right because it's written in law. And then, because of the assertion of that statutory right, the person is dismissed. They are then able to bring a claim for unfair dismissal. So it's quite huge, actually, uh, because whereas before, they could not assert that statutory right unless they've employed, been employed for a month. The statutory right now exists from the first day of employment, and so if an employer is faced with a request for such, they need to consider the position very carefully and act carefully. And because if they just get annoyed and, and from a knee-jerk reaction just decide to get rid of this employee who's asking for employment terms, uh, written statement of terms and then suddenly um, they're facing the sack, you are opening the door to an unfair dismissal claim on the basis that they have asserted a statutory right, which is why they were dismissed, which then circumvents the normal protection an employer has from employees wish to bring unfair dismissal claims, namely the two-year service requirement. So hopefully that explains, in nutshell, that that that's the first change. And believe it or not, There are five changes coming in in April 2020, 6th of April and I've just spent almost 45 minutes explaining the first one but I'd rather do that, take time doing it because it is quite complex and hard to explain so what I would now do is go through the rest of the changes but I'll try not to spend too much time on each one because then we would quite frankly run out of time of some important updates my next update is the agency worker rules. Now, the agency worker rules are set out by the Agency Worker Regulations 2010. These entitle agency workers to receive the same pay and basic working conditions as direct recruits once they've completed 10, 12 weeks continuous um, service working in the same role. This is known as the Swedish derogation. Well, the Swedish derogation is another term and what the swedish derogation does it provides an exemption to the right to equal pay if the agency workers are employed under a permanent contract of employment with a temporary work agency and are paid by the agency for periods between assignments so this is known as a swedish derogation so ordinarily the position is if an agency worker is working for some for a company for let's say any big company um Waitrose for example For 12 weeks continuously And say, let's say they're on the shop floor uh, Working I don't know what the roles are In, in the supermarkets But I don't know um, A checkout sales assistant role And so they are entitled To a, a receive at least If they've been there for 12 weeks or more Continuously They should be on the same pay As permanent workers that are there That's what the agency worker regulations do They provide uh, protection uh, for agency workers so that they're not exploited uh, by virtue of their weaker bargaining position because they are not employees and do not have the full employee um, uh, employment rights that protect them uh, from employee, so employer treating them badly. Now, the Swedish derogation is an exemption to that if what that means is It's an exemption to the equal pay If the agency worker is employed Under a permanent contract employment With the temporary so working agency So what that means is You've got an agency which is placing The uh, um, uh, Worker With say waitrose again for example um, But in doing that There's a contract of employment in place Between the agency worker And the agency that's placing them And uh, where there is um, a, a gap uh, between assignments. So, for example, uh, uh, someone is working at Waitrose, say, for 12 weeks, and then there's a break of two, three weeks, and then they're starting work at another supermarket for another few weeks. Um, the gaps in between those two assignments, if they're being paid for that as well, not just for the hours they work, by the agency... And they've got a contract of employment with the agency, then they are not entitled to be paid the same as permanent workers, even if they've worked twelve weeks or more. And that process is known as a Swedish derogation. The new law will be from the 6th of April, that there is no such thing anymore as Swedish derogation. The position will be much more simpler, that once the agency worker has satisfied a twelve-week qualifying period, they'll be entitled to pay Equal pay to workers who were engaged directly by the worker. Simple. Job done. Again, we are now seeing another extension of protection for workers' rights here. Because the previous right had an exception to it, which is now being taken away. So it doesn't matter now whether you've got a contract of employment with your agency or not, or whether they're paying you for periods in between assignments. If you've worked... For an agency, for a company For 12 weeks or more Then your basic salary should be the same As the permanent employees that already work there The other change is On or prior to the 30th of April 2020 Agency workers whose existing contracts Contain contain a Swedish derogation provision Must be provided with a written notification By the agency That it will no longer have effect So that's similar to the previous example that I gave So if employee worker is not given that written notification there's potentially two issues arising out of that one issue is because the employer hasn't realized and has therefore has not increased their salary in line with the permanent workers and therefore that would allow the agency worker to bring a claim under the agency worker regulations for Uh, 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 deduction from pay effectively um, and breach of the equal pay requirements Um, but also if a written notification hasn't been given even if the salary has been increased because that's another failure there is compensation that can be and a sanction that can be imposed by a tribunal for that as well in addition to that On the 6th of April 2020, all agency workers must be provided with a key fact statement sitting at the terms under which they will undertake work. Similar to a written terms uh, um, uh, requirement as we already set out as being rolled out. Very interesting because what that means then is proactive steps are being taken here to improve the protection for agency workers because they are vulnerable, aren't they? Agency workers... not directly employed by a company will always be regarded by a company as easily disposable and cheap labor sometimes and the uh, aim of this legislation is to rectify uh, and rebalance that now we're running out of time we've only we've only got about six minutes left so i'm going to go through the next few changes IR, ir 35 changes coming in what is ir 35 ir 35 applies to um Uh, It's tax law, basically. Tax rules apply to an individual a worker who performs services for another. Now, the reason why this is important is uh, because people will often invoice companies and work for them as a contractor and get the benefit of of, um, self-employed tax rules under the IR35 rules. This is all changing now. They're going to make it more stringent. And from 6th of April 2020, there will be uh, IR35 rules being implemented for medium and large businesses in the private sector, which will mirror the changes that took place in the public sector in 2017. So under the new regime, for all contracts entered into or payments made on or after the 6th of April 2020, the owners will shift from the Personal service company, which is also known as a PSC, to the end user client to make a status determination. So, whereas currently, if I'm contracting uh, and I've got a limited company set up and I'm invoicing um, the company that I'm working for, I will say that is I fall within the IR35 rules or not uh, to get the benefit of a self-employed or limited company uh, tax setup. Now, it's for the and the user to make that assessment and confirm that and the responsibility for accounting for tax and national insurance will shift to the party who pays for the individual services known as the fee payer. so what that means then is if someone is paid uh, as self-employed um, when they should not have then it's the business that is now going to be liable as opposed to that person who was submitting the invoice and in, in, in anticipation of these changes, it's essential that the medium and large businesses carry out an assessment to determine whether the new rules under IR35 will apply to the independent contractors and review their contracts and pay the arrangements accordingly. So that is best practice, that's not law. So in preparation for all of this, it is advised that medium and large businesses do assess their position with all of their contractors to make sure they're not going to get caught out by any of these new tax changes. Important point to note, and it is important because people don't seem to know this, small businesses are not affected. The new IR35 changes do not affect small businesses, only medium to large size businesses. So if your business falls under the category of a small business, quite frankly, don't worry about it. Done. Okay, next one. Holiday pay reference period adjustment. Current law, the calculation of holiday pay Uh, uh, is done um, where people have different hours uh, that they're being worked currently the reference period is 12 weeks so what you do is if you want to work out what someone's holiday uh, pay entitlement is um, uh, you look at their past 12 weeks pay and average it out (coughs) and that is what the holiday pay entitlement is during the holiday the new law um, is that that would increase from 12 weeks to 52 weeks. And that's, again, increasing the protection because in some cases, a person may not have worked many hours uh, in the 12 weeks prior to the holiday pay, um, being a uh, holiday request being put in. Uh, whereas in the previous three months, it done really well. So now the average the reference period is no longer 12 weeks. From the 6th of April 2020 onwards, it's going to be looking at the full 52 weeks, um, which I personally think is a good thing and is, again, another extension of workers' employers, employees' rights and protection. And in doing that, you discard any weeks where the employee has not worked or where no pay was received. Again, protecting the employee uh, so that you are not disadvantaged by the fact that you were off sick for a certain period or not working for whatever other reason for a certain period in those fifty two weeks average you only look at the worked weeks so what w- weeks they were worked and paid for and what the average pay was over a fifty two week period and that average pay is what the pay is entitled to for holiday pay very very important okay and this again um Helps people who might do seasonal roles for companies, etc. For currently, we have we have now coming in uh, from sixth of April twenty twenty, um, potentially but sort still of waiting confirmation. But my understanding is coming in is a new parental bereavement law. Currently, there is no current law for parental bereavement. Under the new law, which is going to be uh, spearheaded by the Parental Bereavement Leave and Pay Act twenty eighteen, um, it will uh, allow bereaved Parents, the right to two weeks of leave for the loss of a child under the age of 18 or still birth after 24 weeks of pregnancy. So currently there is no such a legal right. Once this law comes into place, and if you are unfortunate enough to lose a child who is under the age of 18 or suffer a stillbirth after 24 weeks of pregnancy, you will be entitled to parental bereavement. Abrievement, leave, and pay. So you'll be allowed time off, pay time off, which does not affect or come out of your holiday pay or your sickness pay or affect you negatively in any way. And I think this is very good. Again, another extension of employment rights. And the bereaved parents will be entitled to take their leave in a one two-week block or in two separate blocks of one week. The leave must be taken before the end of a period of at least 56 days, beginning with the date of the child's death. And bereaved parents employed with a minimum of 26 weeks continuous service will also be entitled to receive statutory parental bereavement pay. And those with less than 20 weeks, 26 weeks continuous service will be entitled to week two weeks of unpaid leave." apologies i would love to go into more detail about this i think it's a massive thing it's absolutely huge but we've come to the end of the show so please pray for me asalaamu alaykum everybody and we'll tune in look forward to tuning in on the next show asalaamu alaikum. thank you for listening to our podcast we stream our daily broadcast on inspirefm.org you'll find all our daily updates on our social media at inspirefmluton